Why do you love llamas teeth so much? Um, because they're the best animals in the world. How so? Like, why well, not? Because I just look real dumb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they look stupid and they act stupid, so we like them. Hello and welcome to Too Much of Not Enough, a Silverchair podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Hedger, and in this episode, I'll be talking about Silverchair's debut album, 1995's Frog Stomp. In the last episode, I said Silverchair got a lot of shit, in the early days especially, which comes naturally with any success in Australia. And they did get a lot of shit. Nirvana in pyjamas was one of the names they got tagged with, even though Daniel John's having blonde hair and the band being a trio aside, Silverchair had very little in common sonically with Nirvana. There was even a parody CD release called Silver Pram. I Turn 4 Tomorrow was their stellar take on the title. They actually sold this in real shops and people bought it. It got to number 72 on the charts. That's how big Silverchair were and how much they pissed people off by the same token that there could be a shitty comedic version of their first single. And this was a historically bad take. But you know what? The song itself, Tomorrow, is so strong that even the guy who did the parody recognised it and didn't change anything really about the song. But we'll talk about Tall Poppy Syndrome later. It's going to come up a lot in Silverchair's career. So Australia had heard Tomorrow. You might even say they were sick of it. In January 1995, Silverchair released Pure Massacre, the first true single for Frogstomp. I had the Pure Massacre single and devoured the B-side, Faultline, which was a new song. It was a live recording from a Newcastle gig they'd done the previous October. From memory, the song didn't even have the second verse yet. Things were moving very quickly for the three members of Silverchair. When Frog Stomp came out, I had that existential dread that a 10-year-old with no money has. How can I convince my parents to buy this for me? Frogsum was released in March 1995, which is too late for a Christmas present and too early for my birthday in June. My wonderful parents ended up surprising me by putting it on in the car, which was a new Tarago, the first car we'd ever had that had a CD player in it. And I heard the opening riff of Israel's Son through the car speakers which I recognised because it had been on the radio by now. And my parents were like, 
Do you recognize this? I was ecstatic with happiness, but also terrified that there would be swearing on the album. So I asked them to turn it off and that I would listen to it by myself later. Because there's nothing more embarrassing to a 10-year-old than having your parents hear swearing. I mean, parents don't swear. As it turns out, as I mentioned in the last episode, Sewerchair didn't swear in their lyrics after the Tomorrow EP, so I would have been safe. Soon after, I joined their fan club, the Llama Appreciation Society, which was basically a mailing list, um, but you know, real mail, paper letters in the mail. I remember receiving a handwritten photocopied letter about their American tour and also a postcard of a llama in a yoga pose. Until recently, I thought this must have actually died out, but apparently after a while they started charging fans to be on the mailing list and I must not have thought it was worth asking my parents for the fee. You'll notice I mentioned an American tour. Yep, by the time this album was released, Silverchair were well on their way to touring internationally. Being signed to Epic, a Sony subsidiary, didn't hurt. Off the back of Frog Stomp, Silverchair did a 46-date world tour, opening for the Red Hot Chili Peppers and then the Ramones. They were on Saturday Night Live, and they played on the MTV VMA Awards. They were everywhere. It's no wonder Americans got completely off on the wrong foot with Silverchair. And somewhere around all of this, they had to finish their high school education. The thinking at the time was that making them finish high school would keep them grounded. But, as we'll soon see, being teenage rock stars didn't stop the bullies. In fact, it only encouraged them. So I, I noticed you look like pretty, like you were used to having cameras like in your face and stuff like that. No, I was just ignoring them. <laughs> pretty easy to zone them out, just think about the music? Yeah. Yeah, good. So it's a big change in your life, huh? Like um, you went from being a, a garage band in Newcastle to suddenly with your first single selling more than in excess of Midnight Oil and like the five, one of the top five ever Australian songs. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Did, was it a big, uh, like, okay, how um, have you been able to stay grounded through this whole thing? Um, staying at school mm. stops you from getting a big head. Because if you get a big head at school, you get ripped off a lot. Are you? <laughs> so, yeah, you just got to stay as normal as possible. Let's rewind a bit. Frog Stomp was recorded in nine days between December 94 and January 95 at Festival Studios in Sydney, produced and engineered by Kevin Caveman Shirley. According to the liner notes of the album, it was mixed by Kevin Shirley at Eclipse Studios and mastered by Ted Jensen at Sterling Sound in New Jersey, USA. The album has 11 tracks, one of which was a re-recorded version of Tomorrow, Daniel and Ben share writing credits on seven songs, with Daniel writing the remainder. It would have been the easy and maybe even the expected thing to just build an album around the hit single, but Silverchair's bench was deeper than that. After all, they got three more singles out of Frogstomp, not counting Tomorrow, the Frogstomp version of which was the lead single internationally. This new version of Tomorrow is a much more assured, grown-up version of the song compared to the Tomorrow EP version. It had only been months, but the road time had really paid off. By now, the band had played gigs in front of some tough crowds in their hometown of Newcastle, a traditional coal, copper and steel town. They might not have had the road dog miles to give them cred in the eyes of some critics, but they were getting there.
This version of Tomorrow fits in sonically with the rest of the album, including Daniel's more natural delivery. He even plays around with the melody in the second verse and putting to tape an ad-lib he'd been doing live for a while now. brings that section of the song to life and is compositionally a smart step forwards. It's a small thing, but keeping the audience interested with small musical changes is a theme that Daniel would return to throughout Silverchair's albums. Recording in a studio can be a very slow and tedious process. So, to keep the young band interested, what Kevin Shirley did was, rather than recording all the basic tracks first and then going back for overdubs and vocals later, they would record everything for one or two songs at a time, so that every day or so there would be a complete song finished. We recorded like a song in the morning, then in the afternoon we'd just get lunch and play Sega or something, play video games, and then um, when it got like, later into the evening we'd record like a song or two after that, so each day we'd record like one or two songs. So that was how it worked, and then we just did the vocal tracks after we got all the music down. Whether it was because of getting better at their instruments, or experience playing as a unit from all the gigging they'd done, or the influence of producer Kevin Shirley, the band sounds a lot more confident on Frog Stomp. The playing is better, and Daniel Johns has done away with the vocal affectation that he had on the Tomorrow EP. His singing is a lot more natural, and really, especially for his age, his voice was a weapon. You can see where his voice would develop into the powerhouse machine he later had. For all the talk of this being a grunge album in the Pearl Jam or Alice in Chains mold, what I hear is, again, a band trying to harken back to an older era of music, while still existing as a current band. Although Daniel initially was a big fan of Pearl Jam, though he downplayed that as the years went on, and later Tool and Helmet, Frog Stomp sounds just as much like an approximation of a 70s style rock album as it does a mid-90s grunge album. For example, the John Bonham-inspired drums and the Sabbath or Deep Purple Drop D riffing of Daniel's guitar. You can hear this influence directly in some places. Leave Me Out's main riff is more than a little reminiscent of Black Sabbath's Sweet Leaf. A few bands do get thank you in the Frog Stomp liner notes. The Cult, UMI, The Offspring, the Affected, The Jets, and Wally Meany from The Meanies. To provide the necessary grunt for the sound he wanted on the album, Kevin Shirley loaned Daniel a 1955 Les Paul to play. Before that, Daniel had apparently been playing a very 80s heavy metal Ibanez. In future episodes, I'll be talking more about Daniel's guitars because he eventually got some beauties. A similar thing had happened on the Tomorrow EP when Chris Joannou had to borrow another band's bass because he was borrowing his dad's bass to play and it wouldn't stay in tune. The result is that Frog Stomp has a classic heavy rock sound that might have some 90s trappings around the edges, but the production has stood the test of time. 
In fact, supposedly, years later, David Bottrell, who produced Diorama, told the band that when he was producing Tool's Anima, the guitarist Adam Jones asked for that frog stomp guitar tone. Ben and Chris were a fantastic rhythm section, even then. And this is on display in songs like Israel's Son, the opener that starts with Chris's bass being slowly joined by the rest of the band. Listening to this song recently, I was struck by how well it's written. It's a heavy rock song with an honest-to-goodness hummable melody. You can see why this was the only Frog Stomp song still played at basically every show they ever played, even long after they felt they had grown out of it. It sounds like a song written to get a live audience going, even having lyrics like, put your hands in the air, though I always interpreted that as being more about crucifixion than having a good time. Israel's Son in particular was Daniel's attempt at writing a Black Sabbath song. Apparently he even played it for his dad, a Sabbath aficionado, for his approval. And just a quick bit of rock history, Black Sabbath's guitarist Tony Iommi cut off the tops of his middle and ring fingers in an accident at a sheet metal factory where he was working when he was 17. So the story goes that because of this, he couldn't play guitar, you know, the right way. So he had to basically invent drop D tuning, which allows a guitarist to play a full power chord by just fretting with one finger. It also has the side effect of making it sound really heavy too. So anyway, the drop D tuning and chorus melody that follows the chords of the song in Israel's Sun is very much an Aussie era Sabbath kind of sound. In fact, quite a few of Frog Stomp's tracks uh, benefit from this sound. Across Frog Stomp's 11 songs, six of them are in drop D, only four in standard. Find A Way is actually in drop C or D tuning with the lower string tuned down another step. In fact, and this is going to keep coming up, the songwriting even this early in Silverchair's career is very good. Daniel, along with Ben, who shares a songwriting credit on many of the tracks, might have been aping their heroes at this point, but they were taking the right lessons from them too. How to structure a song, how to write a melody to complement riffs and chord progressions, and how to arrange a song for dynamic impact. Even the instrumental track Madman is structured quite well even if I think the riffs get a little boring without vocals to support them. Incidentally, there is a vocal version of Madman um, released as a B-side to the Shade single. A lot of lyrics on Frog Stomp and the Tomorrow EP are drawn from things Daniel had seen on TV or issues that would have been in the air at the time. Pure Massacre and Israel's Son reference overseas conflicts. Tomorrow, as we know, was inspired by an SBS documentary. Faultline was based on a TV news story about the 1989 Newcastle earthquake. The closing track Find Away imagines a juvenile delinquent on the run with possibly the most out-and-out positive lyrics in the band's whole catalogue. Some of the lyrics seem to be about quote-unquote issues. Undecided sounds like it's about divorce. Cicada is literally about puberty. Growing up is like a civil war. It's like a civil war. Up, 
This continues a thread set up on the Tomorrow EP, where Stoned could similarly be seen as an issue song about drugs. Shade references bullying or abuse in general, something that by this point Daniel in particular was experiencing at school, and this affected him for years afterwards, which we will see tackled in future releases. Suicidal Dream, too, is a harbinger of what's to come in Silverchair's later work. Musically, it has a darker sound and isn't a straight-up heavy rock song. the most neon ballroom of the 11 songs on Frog Stomp. Lyrically, it's the first time thus far that Daniel has hinted at what we will later learn were his mental health struggles that followed him for the entirety of Silverchair's career. At the time, he said that Suicidal Dream was about the issue of teenage suicide in general and not a personal statement. It's probably not until the second album, Freak Show, that Daniel had had enough life experience to draw on and flesh out the dark themes in his lyrics. It's what the band experienced while on tour for Frog Stomp that fueled the next album and beyond. But the early seeds were there. Some of the lyrics on Frog Stomp, and I'm thinking of Cicada again, growing up is like a civil war, Get at the struggle to communicate as a young person, something that I remember being struck by as a 10 or 11 year old hearing this album for the first time. Growing up is like a civil war, especially when you're doing it in the spotlight and not able to articulate how you feel and only able to express yourself through, you know, playing music. You've got the song Chicana or Chicada. Is that a beetle? Yeah. One of those huge big beetles? Yeah. In Australia, you have different bugs than us here in North America. Yeah. So, um, what's that song about? I'm growing up. Mm-hmm. And you know how it grows? Yeah, that's what it... We don't like that song very much. Mm. How come? Because <laughs> it was written a long time ago. You feel like you've outgrown it some? Yeah. We're kind of sick of it. That's Daniel on Canada's Much Music, barely talking to the interviewer about how he doesn't like a song on the album he's there to promote. I mean, look up some interviews from around this time. Any media appearance the band made was as if it was under duress, kids sent to the principal's office made to account for themselves. And there was definitely some imposter syndrome going on. The band didn't know why they were suddenly in the spotlight any more than the interviewers and reviewers did who thought they were ungrateful kids. They were just a band who wanted to play music and not deal with any of this stuff. But now there was a whole apparatus built up around them. Tours, media appearances, contracts, and your schoolmates and national media cutting you down as tall poppies for rising above your station. Would you have handled that at 15? Everyone goes through an awkward phase in their teen years. It just happened that the members of Silverchair had to go through all that in the public eye. Not just literally growing up and becoming an adult, but musically growing up. Being told you were a flash in the pan just because you'd started a serious band early in your life. We always knew. When, yeah, we always... Me and Ben have been playing together since we were seven years old, starting in little rap bands and just rapping, pressing demo on a keyboard so it came up with a beat. And that's, yeah, we got 
we got Chris to play with us when we were 11 or 12, and that's when we started playing instruments. So we've been to playing together for like 16 years or something stupid. It's, it's like I, I can't remember my life when I wasn't in Silverchair, and I can't even even though after Neon Ballroom and uh, and a few other records and moments, I I wanted to break the band up. Not because I didn't like the band, just because it was doing my head in. Um, but we always knew when we were when we were thirteen and fourteen and recording our first EP, we never, you know, even when people were saying you're a flash in the pan, we would like just wait. We're not. <laughs> we just wanted to get better and better. That was what we knew. It. We we started really early, and we knew that was such a rare opportunity to just become a great band, and it it would be stupid to throw it away because we've just got a, a thing it's like it's almost like there's a we've got similar blood now listening to frog stomp again you hear a band that had no idea what was in store for them the good or the bad speaking of good and bad let's go back to israel's son the album opens with israel's son for people of a certain age that bass line that starts natural and then becomes distorted and then is joined by guitar and drums all playing that one iconic riff brings up so many memories When the vocals kick in, the first thing we hear is... Whoa, this band of teenagers got dark. By now, the band's influences had expanded from their dad's record collection to current bands like Tool, Shellac and Helmet. And you can hear that in Israel's son especially. The majority of Frog Stomp is written in drop D tuning which gives the guitar that distinctive heavy sound. I had a half-formed theory that the older songs, as in the song Silverchair wrote first on Frog Stump, are the ones that are in standard tuning, Tomorrow, Shade, Cicada, while the newer, more recent songs were the songs written in drop D. That doesn't quite hold up since Blind from the Tomorrow EP is also in drop D, but Frog Stump definitely has a heavier sound that those bands I mentioned were using at the time. Kevin Shirley's influence probably helped here as well. Israel's Son is an important song for a few reasons. It became the only song from Frog Stomp that Silverchair would continue to play throughout its career, and after the year 2000, no other Frog Stomp song would sneak into their live set list. Well, actually, I believe that their Rock in Rio 2001 performance from January 2001 was the last time a song other than Israel's Son was in their set list. They actually played Pure Masca at that gig. I've mentioned this before, that the band grew sick of their early work and didn't think it represented them anymore. Radiohead have done the similar thing with their first album too. It probably didn't feel truthful to sing many of the songs from this album in your 30s, as much fun as it would have been for the fans to have heard them in, say, 2007. For me, even though I don't think the first album is anywhere near as good as their latest stuff, I would still love to see a reunion tour where they felt comfortable enough to play a few deep cuts from the first two albums. And who are we kidding? Chris and Ben would probably be up for it. It's Daniel that was making the set lists. The other relatively important thing about Israel's son is that it was involved in a murder trial in America. A teenager named Brian Bassett, along with a friend, Nicholas McDonald, murdered Brian's parents and younger brother. When they were caught, they claimed that the song Israel's Son had inspired them to do it. 
It was a dumb defense, but the defense lawyer took it to trial, saying that the song was basically a script for murder. There was even the possibility that Daniel Johns as the songwriter would be subpoenaed. Apparently, Kevin Shirley was really shaken by the whole thing, feeling in some way responsible because he had been the producer on the song. Eventually, the judge in the case refused to let the song be played in the courtroom, as the defense lawyer wanted, but the damage was done to Silverchair. Even though this was clearly another case of blaming rock music for horrific events, as well as lawyers taking advantage of this kind of panic, the whole incident really got to the band, Daniel in particular. Silverchair's manager John Watson points to this incident as a tipping point for Daniel, where he went from being a fairly carefree kid to a wary and reclusive young man. It also didn't help that tabloid rags like the Daily Telegraph were by now sending out paparazzi to take photos of Daniel, in one famous example, riding his bike to school with the headline, How a Six Million Dollar Boy Gets to School. When we were young, I literally had... It, was, it wasn't normal at all, and I, I, I'm not whinging. It was, I've, I, would never, I wouldn't change my life in any way, but when we were young, I literally had the people that wanted to kill me and the people that wanted to be my best friend, and that was it. There was no normality. There was no, like, nice to meet you, what's your name, let's get to know each other. It was like, nice to meet you, do you hate me or do you want me to sign Frog Stomp for you? (laughs) Even in that clip from an interview more than a decade later, he still had to clarify for the Australian audience that he wasn't whinging. Frog Stomp sold very well. Released on March 27, 1995, it hit number one on the ARIA charts, and it was number one in New Zealand, and it hit number 9 on the US Billboard 200, the first Australian band to hit the top 10 in the US since In Excess. The album version of Tomorrow, released in the States as the lead single, was the most played song on US modern rock radio that year, reaching number 1 on the Billboard modern rock and Billboard mainstream rock charts. It went double platinum in the US, four times platinum in Australia, and sold more than 4 million copies worldwide. Like, this was a no-joke international hit despite that stock image of a frog on the cover. In fact, as much as Silverchair's music progressed, I don't think they ever had a really great album cover. The singles released from Frog Stomp were Pure Massacre, Israel's Son, Shade, Find A Way was released as a fan club only single, and Tomorrow, though it's this album version of Tomorrow that was released in the States and became what they are still known for to this day in that country. That's kind of the great tragedy of Silverchair's success in the States. As another classic Aussie rock group, The Divinal, said, too much too young. The critical response to Frog Stomp was mixed, to be polite. I've struggled to find a lot of contemporary reviews, but you had established critics savaging them, especially in the States, because there was that grunge fatigue, and even I have to admit, they had a lot in common with that sound, even if I think it's unfair to lump them in with a band like Bush or Candlebox. Shane Danielson, writing in the Sydney Morning Herald, called it an impressive debut, with an ability to pile layers of punishing noise atop a tune worth humming. Notorious grump Robert Kreisgau of The Village Voice wrote, These Aussie adolescents admire Nirvana and Pearl Jam, which is cute, and sound like Pearl Jam, which is natural almost exactly like Pearl Jam, except no good, which is useless. One quite positive review came from Rolling Stone's David Frick, who had seen the band at the Sydney Big Day Out and later interviewed them on their US tour. 
He wrote, Truly shameless wannabes like Bush should be so lucky to have had the hard smarts that Silverchair, particularly the band's main writers, singer-guitarist Daniel Johns and drummer Ben Gillies, show on frog stompers such as Pure Massacre and Israel Sun. When these guys turn 18, they'll really be dangerous. At the beginning, I'd say with that tomorrow, with the tomorrow EP, I'd say, yeah, that well, you can see the comparisons there, but now I think we've we've moved on a bit and and um, gone a bit heavier and, and changed a bit, yeah. I don't think we sound like Pearl Jam or anything like that now. We don't particularly like the comparisons to Nirvana because um, we, uh, we think that you know, the music's nothing like him. Just a lot of people say, oh, he's trying to be Nirvana because we're a three-piece and I've got blonde hair and stuff like that. They don't say it's just because the hair's that long and I'm trying to grow, but it won't grow. So I'm just going to keep trying to grow it and if it doesn't grow, I'll just shave my head and be a punk. Sadly, for a lot of America, Frog Stomp would be the last they would hear of Silverchair. They would be known as one or two hit wonders, a relic from the post-grunge 90s. Well, who cares about America anyway? A lot of the rest of the world, and obviously Australia in particular, still had open ears. After all, the Silverchair story had only just begun. Frog Stomp is an album that's not very original, but still solid. On Frog Stomp, there aren't too many glimpses of what was to come musically, but it shows promise and potential. It made people sit up and listen. Oh, and what does Frog Stomp mean? Daniel Johns took it from a song by Stax record artist Floyd Newman, which Daniel found among John Watson's record collection. What does that sound like, you ask? And that's it for this episode. Thanks for joining me. Next time on the show, the difficult second album, Freak Show. This podcast is written and produced by me, Daniel Hedger. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends or your enemies if they like Silverchair. You can follow me on Instagram at Silverchair Podcast and Facebook at facebook.com slash Silverchair Podcast. All music is by Silverchair, owned by Murmur and 11 music publishers. I believe all music is being used with a fair use exemption for criticism as per copyright.com.au slash about copyright slash exceptions. I've also judiciously utilized YouTube for old interview clips. If you happen to be one of the owners, I will happily remove the clips from this recording. However, I suspect most of those clips no longer exist outside of YouTube. And in addition to fair use, I consider what I'm doing akin to archival work. 